0: Welcome to the Going Further in Higher Education podcast, Shakespeare Martineau's new show where we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in the higher and further education sectors. I'm Samita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education here at Shakespeare Martineau and I'm joined today by Geraldine Swanton, uh, one of my colleagues in the uh, education team and a legal director. And the topics we were going to cover in today's podcast were mandatory vaccinations for students, good idea, bad idea, the trouble with student protection plans, and finally, a warm welcome to Turing and perhaps a wistful farewell to Erasmus. So, Gerry, in the latest round of government hokey-cokey, there's been a sort of will they or won't they on uh, compulsory vaccinations, COVID vaccinations, obviously, for students when they return to higher education. And this throws up some quite interesting Uh, questions from a legal perspective, although at the moment the signs are they won't go down this route. So so what are the kind of issues that uh, they should be thinking about?
1: Well, it does seem that Gavin Williamson was a force for reason, uh, uncharacteristically, and that the government may not go ahead uh, with this plan. Uh, I think some universities have nevertheless toyed with the idea of requiring students to be vaccinated before they return to campus or before they take up their places. Now, while there are obviously clear benefits to all students being vaccinated, for me, it raises problems both from an ethical and a legal perspective. I mean, ethically. I think it creates almost a, you know, a clockwork orange universe in which students are forced to choose the good. And as Anthony Burgess said in his novel, when a man cannot choose, he ceases to be a man. So, <laughs> but they're the ethical considerations and you know as lawyers, that's not our uh, primary consideration. But I, I also have real reservations from a legal perspective. Now, I think it is a bit of an exaggeration to say that a blanket university policy of compulsory vaccination forces people to undergo a medical procedure. But it is darned uncomfortably close for me. And that raises human rights concerns. For example, the first right would be the right to privacy, which must include the right to bodily integrity and You know, compulsory vaccination would interfere with that right. Now, not all interferences are wrong, but they have to be justified as necessary, in this case, to protect other people's health and proportionate. And I think it's going to be really difficult to justify a broad policy applying to all students as both necessary and proportionate. There will be less intrusive means of achieving whatever outcome
0: is intended to be achieved. I don't know if you were going to um, go on to this but uh, is there are there any issues do you think with the fact that you're singling out a group of people as well so you've got the general uh, human rights issues around privacy but here very specifically um, you would be treating students differently to the general population. Um, yes. comes to yes. so, so what, what might be the issues there?
1: Well absolutely um, I mean there are two issues there first of all there's the anti-discrimination provision in the human rights uh, legislation and that means that you know students have a right not to be discriminated against in the way education is secured from them for them and so refusing them admission or preventing them from returning to campus on the basis that they're not vaccinated would interfere with that right they you know the right to education exists Again, the difference in treatment would have to be justified as both necessary and proportionate. Again, there will be a difficulty in meeting those two criteria. And of course, a blanket policy could also amount to indirect discrimination against students on the basis of belief or disability for those who are immunosuppressed. And some, as you know, some minority groups are more reluctant to be vaccinated and that policy would adversely affect them. Again, it would need to be objectively justified. And I I also have reservations from a data protection point of view because requiring people to disclose a health record, it's their private health information, it's special category data, and it's going to be very difficult to justify that requirement to, to disclose that information without their consent there are some justifications without consent but none of them really applies for example there is um you know uh, you know the universities could try to invoke uh, employment law saying you know we need students to disclose if they're vaccinated because we need to ensure the health and safety of our staff but again proportionality and necessity are criteria for justification in the data protection regime uh, as it is for as they are for human rights so for me i think the key is education encourage students to do the good don't force them to do the good and make it really easy for them to do the good set up pop up vaccination facilities on campus encourage and educate which is consistent with the mission of universities anyway.
0: Absolutely and I think there's some encouraging uh, evidence isn't there in relation to mask wearing and face coverings which shows that despite them no longer being compulsory people generally are continuing to, to, to wear them because they see the benefits and they understand the benefits.
1: Absolutely. Smeeta, another issue that seems to have arisen recently and has become pretty topical is student protection plans, and I know that you've got clearly defined views on these. Would you like to? Uh, would you like to share them with us?
0: Yes, indeed, I have clearly defined views on many things, but student protection has, to my mind, always been one of those um, parts of the regulatory framework that are particularly flimsy from a legal perspective. So, you remember, Jerry, that. Um, As part of the trade-off between having greater market entry into the higher education sector, the idea was that anybody applying to the register needed to have clear plans to protect students' interests in the event that something went wrong um, or the provider had to close part or all of its activities. And so people duly produced student protection plans, which were submitted to the Office for Students as part of the registration process. Now, for a long time, there's been disquiet about how effective this process is in protecting students when they most need it. Um, But it's recently come back to the fore because um, the OFS is planning to issue new guidance on uh, how to do student protection plans. But also through the pandemic, we've obviously seen people having to do things that have involved uh, student protection type events. And I think the thing, that is uh, vexing me or has been vexing me this week is this idea that uh, the student protection plan is based on the concept of risk assessment. You look at what risks are posed um, at any given point in time and you put in uh, mitigations and you tell people what they are. So by definition, that needs to be a very fluid process because risks will change and the mitigations you might put in place will change if you decide that some weren't effective. And yet we have a regulatory system which approves the student protection plan at the point of registration includes in the regulatory framework an expectation that it will be updated, but there's no further reference to further approval, nor in my mind could there be if it's a truly fluid document. You'd have to submit it for approval every time it changed. And then thirdly, uh, it's become clear, I think, that the OFS is expecting students to be protected by the plan that was in place at the time that they registered with the provider. I mean, If it's a contractual document, we can't change it. That goes against the idea of risk assessment. If it's not a contractual document, what protection is it offering a student? Uh, You know, a provider could change the plan the very next day. And I think the whole system really needs a complete rehaul. Um, At the moment, it's probably more illusory than real, the protection Mm -hmm. it's affording students. Um, So, yeah, so all in all, uh, this week in particular, as I was giving some advice to a client, uh that had you know very sensibly submitted a revised protection plan to the o f s don't need to be told well we're not really approving new plans at the moment. Um,
1: <laughs> It's astonishing. I I think I even find the concept of approving a risk assessment an odd one, because even the courts will not question an institution's own risk assessment unless it's irrational. I mean, an institution is best placed to make its own, to assess its own risk. And and no third party can come along and say, well, I don't agree with that. It's either it's rational and coherent or it isn't. Um, I I don't know. Is, Is that
0: the approach the regulator takes? Has it ever not approved a plan? I'm not, I mean, i'm I'm not aware that it's um ever formally not approved a plan. I mean, clearly, people don't get registered, and part of the failure to register might be inadequate provisions around student protection, although more often you see it in relation to management and governance and consumer protection. Um, I think that the the way that the OFS has tried to deal with those situations where things are quite seriously inadequate around student protection has been the new, condition relating to student protection directions which say that where a provider is very much at risk of closure or failure then the OFS will step in and almost issue its own directions about student protection, um, which makes you wonder what is the point of all the other student protection yeah. plans. Um,
1: if this institution were to invoke its updated risk assessment, I mean, what would the, what, could you anticipate the OFS's response, saying, well, that's not the one we approved and therefore you shouldn't
0: have relied I, on it? Well, obviously not. I mean, I, I, the, the, what the OFS would say is if students have been protected, then there is no concern for them. But it's, it just underlines this kind of fundamental, flaw in the overall regulatory process which I really hope will be remedied but I fear we're stuck with student protection plans and uh, there is no way um, back from them but how useful they are remains a very very um, dubious question in my view.
1: Well watch the space as they say rather um, you know euphemistically. Okay.
0: <laughs> so then the final topic we were going to look at in uh, today's podcast was of course the long heralded and and now, you know, imminent arrival of the Turing scheme, the replacement for the Erasmus scheme. Um, Obviously, this is the attempt to recreate and indeed expand beyond the boundaries of Erasmus, um, student mobility opportunities, not just for universities, but also for colleges and schools. And there's a lot to be excited about in the new scheme, uh, in the sense that it is obviously open Uh, To students to go to far more geographical locations, Um, the inclusion or the more active inclusion of colleges and schools. Obviously, Erasmus also was eligible to um, uh, colleges and schools as well. the more active inclusion of them, meaning it, it introduces a new new range of people who could take advantage of it, um, and the focus I think on ensuring that the most disadvantaged in any uh, part of the education sector benefit from Turing is always all to be lauded. But of course, there are problems, aren't there, Jerry? I mean, there's things like the fact that. Um, uh, institutions are going to have to find their own partners it's not a it's not a sort of easily accessible scheme in the way that Erasmus was um, and for me the biggest barrier is going to be that um, the the tuition fees yeah. of the receiving institution aren't covered and yeah potentially they could be big couldn't so
1: they yeah uh, yeah and an uh, income loss um, but there, there was nothing innately um, discriminatory against Students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds in the um, in in the Erasmus program, as I understand it, I suppose it was taken up more frequently by language students, which itself is self-selective socioeconomically so uh, unless there's now a gap in the language provision the the benefits to language students but of course I suppose you can learn Spanish in South America as well as in Spain so yeah Um, but uh, I think Michelle Donilon was speaking on the radio this morning and it wasn't clear to me whether they'd resolve the
0: tuition fee issue which will be the crux won't it yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at sort of some of the partnerships that we've seen between institutions and American institutions, mm. the um, the American institutions' fees are pretty eye-watering because they mm-hmm. they're, they're obviously um uh, sort of from the private, private. Uh, sector um, in in America. So I think there is going to be that. I think the other thing is it will put a real um, focus on the international strategy that institutions adopt. You know, where are you going to find these partners? Are you going to choose territories and then uh, look for partners within them? Is it going to be much more happenstance that, you know, people Mm -hmm. build relationships with other institutions? And I think things like the due diligence you need to carry out to make sure that the partners are able to deliver the right experience for students will just come much more sharply into focus okay. um, than it had to be for Erasmus where a lot of this was kind of assumed. Yeah. anyway, as we said earlier, this is one of those areas where uh, we'll have to that the proof of the pudding will be in the eating uh, to see whether Turing can deliver on all the things that government um, hopes that it can So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening and we hope that you will join us next time. So from me. Goodbye. And from Jerry, goodbye.